You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Uh, but yesterday I talked a little bit um, uh, about a text in Hebrews 2 that talks about how Jesus comes to set us free from the power of the devil, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, and how that, that power of the devil is the fear in our lives. And I mentioned that I will talk a little bit more about what that battle kind of looks like. What does it mean to do battle with this, and this enemy? I like how you have your translation of your Lord's Prayer. Some people have it as the translation being protect us from evil. Y'all's translation have it as protect us from the evil one. And that is actually probably the best translation. So what does that mean to, to, to struggle with this evil one in our lives? And so if you've never heard a sermon about the devil, we're going to hear one this morning. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to be in our Bible a lot um, this morning. And uh, I'm going to start off with this, this uh, really dramatic passage in Revelation chapter 12. Um, this passage about the war in heaven. So Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, there was a great sign that appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of ten stars around her head. And we believe this woman kind of represents Israel or the people of God, the church. And she gives birth to a son, but then something scary happens in verse 3, but another sign appears, a great fiery red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, or crowns. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and hurled them to earth. And then the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth. And when she did give birth, so that he might devour the child. Then in verse 7, then a war breaks out. Then a war breaks out in heaven. Michael and his angels, they fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they could not prevail, for there was no place for them in heaven anymore. And so the great dragon was thrown out, that ancient serpent was called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven. This kind of victory song breaks out. The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah have now come because why? Because the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown out. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about this war in heaven, uh, this, this struggle, this, this fight between the angels against the minions of Satan and what that feels like. Because in my, in my life, it seems like when we, we encounter these strange texts, uh, we have one of two reactions. On, on the one side are my kind of Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters who, who see this fight as like a real lived battle. They see everyday life filled with, with malevolent, evil, demonic forces, and they're often praying for angelic protection. But sometimes I've watched the way they talk about that, and, and sometimes I don't think it's all that healthy. They can become like overly preoccupied. They can see a demon under almost every rock. I've seen the devil blamed on PowerPoint failures. 
bad parking spots. You, you know, I, I've just seen it that that language be used um, excessively and almost uh, with a, almost a morbid fascination about that other world and not paying attention to to this world and our own actions and our behavior. And I've also seen that language of spiritual warfare used to hurt people with it. And so what we end up doing is we swing to the other side, and there are my kind of more skeptical brothers and sisters who kind of find the whole thing about the devil and demons to be just kind of implausible, scientifically irrational, and and so they kind of treat it all fairly metaphorically. You know, there is evil in the world, but it's probably mainly moral evil, and and uh, and they don't know what to do with it, and so they just kind of shelve it all or whatever. They find it all kind of fairly awkward to talk about. So it seems like there's only these two options. You're either kind of whole hog and you're kind of obsessed with the spiritual battle or you're just kind of embarrassed and just don't know what to do with it. And what I would like to do this morning is kind of like carve out a middle ground. I think there's more to be said than either awkward silence or morbid fascination um, with the spirit realm. I think the Bible is trying to lay out for us a kind of bigger adventure for us to participate in and what it means to do battle with the devil. And so to do that, uh, what I'd like to do this morning is kind of take you on a tour of the names of the devil and use each one of those names as kind of a lens or perspective on what this kind of war in heaven might look like. And so four names of the devil. So we're going to start with, the, with one of the names here, uh, Satan. Let's begin there. Uh, the word Satan comes from a Hebrew word, ha-satan. And does anybody know what that translates at? Hasatan means what in the Hebrew? Satan is the adversary, um, the opponent. And what's interesting in the Hebrew is that that name, Hasatan, can stand for any kind of adversary or opponent. It's, it's, not, it's not necessarily a name for a person as much as it is for a relationship. Anything that kind of is pushing against you. As we talk about swimming against the current, that current is standing against that vicious hasatan. Um, so, uh, for example, even God's actions are described as kind of satanic in this regard. Uh, do you remember the prophet uh, uh, Balaam on the donkey? And, and God sends an angel, and the scripture says he sends the angel to stand against the prophet as hasatan to stand against or opposed to that prophet. And so anything that kind of pushes against us and stands in opposition stands as a Satan to us. And so whatever the Satan is, it represents that force in the world, that kind of dark current that is kind of swimming against the reign of God in this world. God is kind of establishing his reign on earth, and there are forces arrayed that are oppositional to it, that are antagonistic to it. And that fight to establish the reign of God in this hostile environment is the war in heaven. It's it's what we call spiritual warfare. So yesterday, I kind of mentioned what my conversion experience with the devil. My conversion experience to the devil occurred out in a prison. I I teach a Bible study at a maximum security prison, and that's a really dangerous and hostile world. And yesterday, I was talking about how I was uh, teaching the Beatitudes out there. And as I was walking through the Beatitudes and I hit the word, blessed are the meek, I saw skeptical looks on the faces of the men. And I said, it doesn't look like you guys are buying this. And they said, here's the deal. You can't do that in here. Meekness in here is mistaken as weakness. That was my conversion experience with the devil because I kind of had seen the way of Jesus and the reign of the kingdom run into something that night. 
you can't do that in here. There was a dark, violent, diabolical force that told them that the way of the kingdom is really swimming upstream here. It's impracticable, it's dangerous. And as I mentioned yesterday, that evening it shook my soul. I was really disturbed because as I described it, I saw kind of the Beatitudes crash into the world and the, the collision wasn't very pretty that night. And then I went out in the parking lot and I was watching the sunset and the barbed wires behind me and I, I thought to myself, you know, the Beatitudes don't make sense anywhere. That they, they're always going to struggle against some force in the world. And I don't know how you conceive of that force, but I think we know that force is real, that the way of Jesus is a heroic act of resistance in this world, is it not? Or, or the way the scripture says, it says, do not be conformed to what? To the pattern of this world. And whatever that pattern is, I kind of imagine as this, this dark cookie cutter that's trying to squeeze, is pressing down on our, on our lives, trying to force us into a certain pattern of indifference, of apathy, of hate. And can you not feel it in your life? There's this, it's trying to get you to conform to it. And the fight to resist that is how the scripture describes doing battle with the devil, to not be conformed to that pattern. So here's how that story ended. I didn't tell you how it ended yesterday. I said to myself, you know, uh, if I ever get back to that that look on their faces, that you, I can't do that in here, look. I'm going to sit for a, a little longer. And, and I did later on, we got to uh, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And as I was talking about Jesus, you know, this tender act of compassion, washing the disciples' feet, I got that same skeptical look. And I said, I've seen this look before. And they're like, here's the thing. I, 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 we understand what the story means, this tender act of service. But in our world, if you start kind of lowering yourself and being compassionate, you'll get hurt. So you can't do that in here. I said, but come on. Is there any moment, even just for a second, you can show some compassion and some tenderness, maybe with a trusted person? Can, can, the, can the way of Jesus be established even out here in the darkest of places? And it was like dead silence in the room. But I waited. And eventually on the front row, Mr. Noriega raised his hand. And I call him Mr. Noriega because he's a large, scary man. So he's Mr. Noriega to me. <laughs> and so I said, Mr. Noriega, you have your hand up. And he said, uh, well, I'm not sure if this is what you're looking for. But sometimes I help my celly, my cellmate. And I go, okay, give us an example. How, how do you help your cellmate? And he says, well, my cellmate isn't too bright. And on this point, everybody in the room agrees. Like, that's true. Like, his cellmate is not, that's, he's not very bright. And what I discovered as I inquired about his cellmate is that his cellmate had a cognitive disability. And because of that disability, had trouble navigating prison life. And so Mr. Noriega helped him find his way through this hard world. And I said, could you give me like a specific example of how you help him navigate this world? And he says, well, when I first got my cellmate, he never took his shoes off. When I said never, he said never. Never when he went to bed. Never when he showered. And he was, and Texas prisons are on air conditioned. When it gets to be 100 degrees, weeks and months on end. And so you can imagine 
with sweaty feet what his feet looked like if he never took off his shoes. And so Mr. Yari says, I, I kind of began kind of obsessing about this, asking him, why don't you ever take off your shoes? Why don't you ever take off your shoes? Weeks passed, he never would say. And finally he broke them down. And he answered, he said, the reason he didn't take off his shoes is because he was embarrassed. He didn't know how to take care of his feet. So Mr. Uri said, I sat him down, I got a bowl of warm water, and I brought it in. And for the first time in months, we unlaced his shoes, and it was just, you could imagine. His nails, and he said, so I put his feet in the water to soften the nails. I picked up his foot. I showed him how to cut his toenails. That is not being conformed to the pattern of this world. That tender act of compassion, that spiritual warfare. In a world where meekness and tenderness is dangerous and risky and heroic, it's taken care of. And the funniest thing that night is that after he'd said all this, I mean, I'm crying when I hear this story. He looked at me and says, is that an example of what you're talking about? <laughs> I was like, that is, that is an example of what I'm talking about. Do not be conformed to the pattern of Hasatan. Our second name for the devil is uh, Lucifer. Um, uh, turn, turn to your Bibles to uh, Isaiah 14. And Isaiah 14 is the one and only mention of Lucifer in Scripture. Um, I'm going to read it to you, and I want to see if you can hear it, Okay. Lucifer. So Isaiah 14, uh, verse 12. See if you can't pick out the name Lucifer in this text. Shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens, you destroyer of nations, you have been cut down to the ground. Y'all see it? Now, unless you're you, anybody got the King James in the house? A few King James readers? Okay. If you have the King James, you will read the word Lucifer. My, most trans, modern translations don't have the word Lucifer. They, tra- they, they translate it. Where, where is Lucifer in this text? Anybody know? Oh, shining morning star. Oh, day star or morning star. That is Lucifer. So the Latin for morning star or day star is Lucifer. That's the Latin. The King James left it untranslated. So in the King James, it was like, Oh, Lucifer, how you have fallen from heaven. Most translations translate it as, O morning star, day star, how you have fallen from heaven. So in this text, though, who is Lucifer? Does anybody know? If you go back to the top of the text, who is being, who's being told that they're fallen from heaven? It's the, uh, the king of Babylon. Uh, if you go back up to verse 3, so the prophet is telling Israel, the oppressed people of God, God's going to deliver you. And when you get delivered, you get to taunt your oppressor. You get to, you get to taunt the king of Babylon. So this is what it sounds like uh, up in verse 3. So when the Lord gives you rest, right, to Israel, Israel, when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and your torment and the hard labor you were forced to do, you will sing this song of contempt about who? The king of Babylon. And you'll say stuff like this. Oh, how the oppressor is quieted down and how the raging has become quiet. 
because the Lord has broken the staff for the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. It has struck, it struck the peoples in anger with its unceasing blows, and it subdued the nations in rage with relentless persecution. And so there's this taunt toward the king of Babylon who was their oppressor. And it goes on in the middle of the song and said, you, O day star, you thought you were so awesome, you star of heaven, you are being cast down to the ground. And so the original Lucifer was not an angel, but a king. It was a kingdom. It was a political structure. And this idea of, of the Satan being the one who kind of rules over Babylon. And Babylon becomes this symbol of the oppressive rule of the world all the way through Scripture. Satan is described in the New Testament as the God of what? The God of this world. The God of this world is described as Satan. Um, Satan in, in, takes Jesus up to a mountain, particularly in Luke, this is very clear, and he says, I will give you what? All the kingdoms of the world. And America would be included here. All the kingdoms of the world, because they have been given to me. And so Satan is described as kind of the political and economic ruler of the entire world. And so when, he, when the king of Babylon is called out for oppressive practices, so if you flip back to your Bible at verse uh, to chapter 17 in Revelation, let's go back to Revelation really quickly. The climactic moment in Revelation is the fall of Babylon. This war in heaven leads to the fall of Babylon. Chapter 18, verse 1, And I saw another angel with great authority coming down from heaven, and the earth was illuminated with his splendor, and he cried out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And the reason why I've described Babylon as a political and an economic reality is because who cries for her? Who sheds a tear for this great political city? And the answer is what? Verse 9, who cries out? Who weeps for this destruction of this city? The kings of the earth, the political rulers. And who else in verse 11? The merchants, those who buy and sell. It says this, all the merchants, verse 11, will weep and they will mourn over her because no one does what? Why are they crying? Because nobody's buying anything anymore. Nobody buys their merchandise any longer. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls and fine fabrics of linen, purple, silk, scarlet, all kinds of fragrant wood products, objects of ivory, objects of expensive wood, brass, iron, iPhones, marble, cinnamon. Wait a second. I saw something in there. I don't know. Somehow an iPhone slipped in there. Incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, wheat, flying flour, all these products, and eventually even human souls and slaves. People who sell things, are really upset. This war in heaven is not as spiritual as we think it is sometimes. And so what does spiritual warfare, what does it mean to resist Lucifer? It's very clear in verse 4. How do we fight against the oppressive reign of Babylon in the world? Come out. Come out from her, my people. Step out of oppressive political 
and economic structures. And so this is the kind of social justice aspect of spiritual warfare in our lives. That's what it means to resist Lucifer, the king of Babylon. Okay, a third name for the devil um, is Beelzebub. Okay, in, in, in the Gospels, Beelzebub, Jesus is casting out a demon. And the, and the Pharisees say the reason why he has powers over demons is because he is in league with Beelzebub, who is described as the chief of the demons. And Jesus then identifies Beelzebub, the chief of demons, with the Satan, okay, with the devil. Now, we actually don't know where this name comes from, like Beelzebub. Like, where's that name come from? We, some scholars think our best guess about the devil, comes, who Beelzebub is, comes from 2 Kings. If you look, go to 2 Kings chapter 1, this is our best guess about where Beelzebub comes from. Now, in the beginning of 2 Kings, the king of Israel, okay, Ahaziah, he takes a tumble and he hurts himself. He falls from a ladder, basically, and he hurts himself. And so he's, in, he's seeking healing, and this is what happens. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel, and Ahaziah had fallen through the latticed window of the upper room in Samaria, and he was injured. And so he sent messengers with them, saying, Go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, if I, will, if I will recover from this injury. So Baal-zebub, Baal is a, the, a Canaanite word for Lord, okay? And um, Zebub is Hebrew for flies, Right? So we've heard this before, right? This is the all's above is the Lord of the flies. Okay? And we can see the problem here, right? What's the problem? The problem is the king of Israel, who should have allegiance to Yahweh, is hurt. And instead of turning to God, the God of Israel, what does he do? He turns for healing from not God, but the Lord of the flies. And so this brings in a kind of a third bit of what we mean by spiritual warfare. If you, if you, if you ask, I've asked my students this, like, what is the great sin of Scripture? Like, what, like if you're going to rank the worst sins to, to the least worst sins, you know, like, what's the great, great sin of Scripture? The great sin, the deep rot in our lives in the world is idolatry is giving our allegiance to the Lord of the flies rather than worshiping God. And all other sins flow out of that disloyalty, right? Everything else is just, idolatry is the flu virus. Your stuffy nose, your fever, right? The sins, those are all symptoms of the deeper sickness of idolatry that we haven't given God ultimate allegiance And so that's a third way to think about what this war in heaven looks like. The war in heaven is about allegiances. Well, in fact, a lot of scholars think that that's the best word for faith that we have. A lot of us have, have again, over-spiritualized a lot of this stuff. That We we think faith is a, a, uh, 
This is, this is my, I struggle with my students a great deal with this, and millennials. Millennials, who have lots of questions and doubts, think that having faith, you know, to be a Christian means to believe unbelievable things. That's what it means to have faith. I have to somehow make myself, with all my skepticism and all my doubts and everything I've learned about science, so I have to force myself to believe in unbelievable things. Like, to, to, to have faith is to, like, believe in Santa Claus. Like that's how they understand faith. But biblically, faith isn't about believing unbelievable things. Biblically, faith is about pledging allegiance to a kingdom. Some vision of the kingdom of God and pledging allegiance to that above all other allegiances. That's the scandal of the gospel. If you, look at the, if you look at the sermons in the book of Acts, the first proclamations of the gospel, here's a quiz. Do they sound like this? You're sinners in the hands of an angry God. But Jesus has died for your sins as an atoning sacrifice. And if you believe and accept that sacrifice, your sins are forgiven. Does any sermon in the book of Acts sound like that? And you are like, this is a trick question, isn't it? It is a trick question. None of them do. That was not the first gospel proclamation. What was the, what, every sermon in the book of Acts has this as the climax. This is the climax of the gospel. The one you have crucified has been raised from the dead and is now ascended to the right hand of the Father. And Jesus is Lord. That's the good news. The good news is that Jesus is king. That's the, and so the question for the, those crowds is, what team are you on? What team are you on? We're not here to talk about unbelievable things. We're asking, there's a great battle going on. Who is Lord? And so when we look at our life, the trouble is when we are hurt and we're struggling and we're trying to find meaning in our life, we often tend to lean on some things, right? When you are hurting, what are you leaning on? Where's your security? Is it your bank account? Is it the bottle? Is it how attractive you are? You know, what, what is it that you lean on that gives you significance and meaning and worth? Right? Where do you turn? To God? Or to Beelzebub? Because odds are the thing in your life that you're kind of leaning on and you're putting a lot of heft in, you're, you're putting your confidence in that isn't God, I bet you hear a buzzing of flies around that. And pledging allegiance to God over that is spiritual warfare. So let's turn to our last label, which is devil. Okay, Devil is different from Satan. Satan means opponent or adversary. What does devil mean? Accuser. It's actually a legal term. It's actually a prosecuting attorney. It's the, a devil... Anybody who's a devil is one who brings an accusation against somebody. We see this all through Scripture. In Job, you know, Satan is the devil. Satan isn't a tempter of Job as much as he's bringing the accusation. He says his virtue, he's not as good as you think he is, God. He's just doing it, you know, he brings accusation. We saw that in, in Revelation 12, right? Satan is the accuser, the one who does what? Brings accusation against us before the throne room of God day and night. 
And the way, one of the ways I like to think about this is um, uh, in, the, in the Vatican, when they're proposing a saint, you guys know a couple years ago, like Mother Teresa of Calcutta had become a saint. And so as the person who's a really good person is moving up through the, 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 the ranks of getting to be a saint, um, there are certain thresholds they have to clear. And at one of the points, there is a moment in a kind of a Vatican courtroom where somebody has to make the case about why this really good person doesn't deserve it. Why they don't, like they actually put, make a prosecuting attorney for the potential saint, which has got to be a really icky feeling job, right? Like, like you get to be the person to get to say why Mother Teresa of Calcutta doesn't deserve it. Like I'd feel really, I'd need a shower after that day's worth of work. But the Vatican has a name for that person. You know what the name of that role is? They are the devil's advocate. Their role is to bring accusation against the saint. And I tell you what, that idea that Satan is there in the courtroom of God bringing accusation against you and me scares the heck out of me, doesn't it? How about you? Could you imagine what it would be like? You die and you go to heaven I'm going to come around. This is a long way around. So you die and you come to heaven and you're walking up to the pearly gates and the devil's there in a suit with a briefcase going, I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting for you. And you shuffle into the courtroom of heaven and you stand over there and the devil goes over to the prosecuting attorney and he pops the briefcase And he pulls out a list of all of your sins on like a big scroll and he rolls it down the middle of the courtroom. And with great delight says, let us begin. When you were three, you're like, what? We're beginning there? All all your childhood indiscretions when you were punching your little brother. Then you get into your high school years and you guys know how you were in high school. So you're just, just... Every indiscretion, every rebellion, every wicked thought. And it's just just going through every little sin and every big sin that we've ever done. And for me, I would imagine this litany would take, you know, like three days. Just a litany of three days of just... And then finally, he would roll it up and snap this briefcase shut and look at the court and say... They don't deserve it. Look at this. They don't deserve it. But the gospel says in Revelation 12 that that guy has been kicked out of the courtroom. The one who brought accusation against me and you day and night has been thrown out of heaven. The good news is you're going to get there And the prosecuting attorney desk is empty. And instead, you have a defense attorney, a high priest that knows what it was like. Jesus who stands there and say, here's the thing, Dad. Like, I lived down there. I know what it was like to lose a father when I was little, when Joseph died. I know what it's like to have the people that you loved, stab you in the back with betrayal. I know what it's like to be abused and beaten up 
It was hard down there. It was really hard down there. And he's going to look at you and say, hey, you did the best you could. Well done. That's the gospel. The voice that is in the Father's ear isn't the devil. It's the Son advocating on your behalf with empathy. That's the good news today. But here's the dark side of the story. Revelation 12 says the voice that accuses you in heaven is now where? What is it saying? It's been cast down to earth. And so the devil is alive and well on earth. God is not listening to that voice anymore. But who is? We are. We still listen to him all the time. God isn't. And in fact, sometimes we play the devil's advocate for each other in the world. Do we not? Don't we bring accusation? How many times have you brought accusation against somebody this week on social media, in your heart? We point the finger and say, you don't deserve it. Not, not the way you vote. Not, the, not, not because I know what you did. Not, right? Sometimes the church, sadly, does the devil's work on this earth. But here's where I think the devil does his darkest work. It's not us pointing the finger at each other. Where is it? Where's the devil? Where is our battle mostly being played out with that voice of accusation? Here. The, the accusation you bring against yourself. I think that's the biggest battle we're fighting right now. So Nadia Bolz-Weber, she's a Lutheran pastor. Um, she, uh, she told a story in one of her books that she was inviting her church to a retreat, like a church retreat. She's sending the email list out, the Evite, and she gets to John's name. And John was just one of those people that was an annoyance in her life. Like he just sucked the life out of her. He was socially awkward. He never left her alone. And she gets to his name. And she's like, I don't want to spend the whole weekend with John. If John comes to the retreat, I'm going to get no <laughs> Sabbath at all. And in a moment of weakness, she leaves his name off the list and sent the invitation out. The pastor left the member off the list to invite to the weekend. And then he died. And she had to preach his funeral. And you can imagine what's going on in her head. She just, the magnitude of what she had done. And, and what I like about that story, kind of what I scares me about that story, is we've all done that. It seems petty. It doesn't seem like a big deal. But when he dies, you realize how mean that really was, the magnitude of the offense. And she cannot forgive herself. She's like, how am I going to stand over his grave and preach his funeral knowing I left them off the list. And she goes to another pastor friend and says, I have to confess this. I can't get this voice out of my head. I feel like the worst person in the world. And she goes to her friend and lays it all out in front of her. And her friend said this, Nadia, first of all, that's bad. <laughs> so I think it's honest. I think that's an honest thing to say. That's bad. But Nadia... Bad as that is, Jesus died for your sins. 
even that one. And that fight to believe that, that Jesus died for your sins, even that one, because we all have that. Like, yeah, 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 Jesus died for my sins, but there's just this one thing I cannot forgive myself for. There's this one thing that is so bad that it accuses me before the throne of God day and night, this voice in my head, to believe. Yeah, God forgives all my sins, but this one? The fight to believe that? That's spiritual warfare, to believe that. Let me let the praise team come on up here because we're going to start coming to the table. The prayer in Ephesians that we read over, I think it's interesting because Paul says this, I pray, I pray that you have the power to comprehend. I pray that you have the power to believe something. Usually we think of power and strength as like lifting a heavy rock. And Paul shifts the, the image. He says, the biggest, heaviest rock you're going to have to lift in your mind is the believability of something that is hard to believe in. That your sins are forgiven, even that one. I pray that you have the power to comprehend this. How deep and how high and how wide this love is because a lot of us come finding that too hard to believe and so the church and this table its purpose is to make the love of God believable again that these emblems are trying to remind you of this unbelievable miracle and that we stand before each other as sacraments of God's love and the way we love each other, and the way we forgive each other, it gives us a little bit of strength to believe in a love that is beyond belief. And so this reminder of that love stands before us as the table. And all are welcome because you're forgiven, even for that.